morning. 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 For the past two weeks, we have been discussing uh, Revelation. We've discussed general revelation, special revelation, and uh, the purpose of um, both working in cooperation with one another to first lead to a knowledge of God and then lead to uh, knowledge of uh, salvation uh, through God and his redemptive work. Um, today we're going to be discussing inspiration. Uh, so what I'm going to do uh, in the beginning is, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this because I would much rather focus on correct teaching than incorrect teaching, but I'm going to be presenting a couple of uh, uh, views of uh, inspiration that are uh, flawed in uh, different ways. Um, they're views that have been um, formulated by uh, different men, different groups uh, over time uh, in order to explain uh, how much of the Bible is inspired or how it's inspired. And then we'll eventually get into a correct biblical view of inspiration and we'll review uh, some scriptures uh, with um, Jesus' uh, own words concerning that as well as uh, to of his disciples, Paul and Peter's uh, views on inspiration. So first, um, let's get into some incorrect uh, views of inspiration, um, which some of you might have actually even uh, come across these in conversation, in different uh, teachings that you yourself have been exposed to, or pastors that uh, you happen to have uh, encountered online or in person. So... <clears throat> um, we have, uh, to start with, we have the view of natural inspiration. Um, this is simply just a view that uh, men who were particularly religious uh, and wise in their own right uh, somehow were able to uh, put together and compile these scriptures that we have, <coughs> and they're not the work or uh, direct word of God, but rather just the word of men. Uh, there are obvious problems with this. Uh, first and foremost being, how do we verify that? And uh, secondly, um, how do we objectively then view the scriptures if they are just the work of religious men uh, writing through their own natural abilities and wisdom? Uh, because if I write something and Brad writes something and Paul writes something and we all compare those together, which one of us is right? What uh, metric do we use uh, to, to be able to verify that? Um, <clears throat> Associated with that, there's also the view of spiritual inspiration, which is that the uh, Holy Spirit inspires uh, different men to write, but not necessarily the words. And so again, we run into the issue of how do we pick and choose who is inspired and who is not? And when do we actually cut off the point of inspiration because this can then carry over into today? Uh, so by that standard, literally any Christian writer could potentially be inspired. And I'm sure that those of you who have perused the shelves of Christian bookstores know that that is a problematic view of inspiration. <laughs> so we're not really uh, seeing any metric to be able to define uh, a standard for inspiration from these views. We're just seeing uh, a lot of subjective opinions presented of this person's inspired, or this is the genesis of revelation and inspiration, but how do we actually determine this is, is coming from God? Um, and then we get into slightly more uh, acceptable, at least on the surface, views of inspiration, such as partial or dynamic inspiration. 
Now this is a view that would suggest that parts of the scriptures are inspired but not all and the uh, common view uh, held with this is that uh, any scriptures that concern faith or practice are inspired whereas uh, scriptures uh, regarding history, science, uh, chronology, or any other non-faith uh, topics uh, could potentially be an error. Um, again, the problems that arise with this is, is how do we really then trust the scriptures at all? Because if we're saying that parts of them are inspired but not all of them are inspired, then we run into a problem. We then have to ask ourselves, what do we first of all consider to be faith and practice-oriented uh, scriptures versus scriptures that solely deal with history, science, chronology, etc.? Because oftentimes they actually uh, overlap with one another. So if we dismiss <coughs> scriptures that uh, perhaps uh, give us a scientific uh, claim or um, a uh, chronological record, uh, there might be doctrine contained in those scriptures, and then we're actually throwing out the baby with the bathwater. So, what we have to um, acknowledge with that is that, again, that's a very subjective method of choosing what scriptures we accept, what scriptures we reject, uh, and it can lead to a lot of dangerous doctrine, because once you start to reject one portion of the Bible or identify one portion of the Bible as being an error, you basically have reduced the entirety of the Bible to being subjective to man. Uh, <clears throat> we have uh, a view of conceptual inspiration. Uh, the view of conceptual inspiration is that the ideas and the concepts contained in the scriptures uh, were inspired, but not the literal, actual words. The problem with this is that to communicate concepts and ideas, we need words. And so if the words are not inspired, we have abstract ideas that cannot be actively <coughs> communicated. Uh, so we can dismiss this view of scripture because then how do we determine that the human authors were indeed writing all of the correct words of God if they were just given abstract concepts and ideas and had to use their own words because that could potentially lead to error. <clears throat> Finally, uh, well actually um, Let's turn really quickly to First uh, Thessalonians, um, because with that particular uh, view, I, I want to address, uh, Paul himself actually addresses this in First Thessalonians. For those of you not uh, reading along in a physical copy of the Bible, I'm um, going to be reading out of the ESV. First uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. 
For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. So in this passage, we see first and foremost, Paul is communicating that his words are not his words, but rather they're the words of God. The Thessalonians accepted them as being the words of God. Paul is commending them for that, pointing out the fact that God has rewarded them for that, and then also uh, pointing out the fact that others have opposed him from preaching God's words to the Gentile, and they've actually brought destruction upon themselves. So this very clearly indicates that Paul's view of Scripture was that it was not his own word, it was from God, and there are also clear uh, consequences from rejecting that word. We see finally uh, in false views uh, of Scripture, we see the divine dictation view, uh, which uh, is kind of... Uh, on the other end of the spectrum of a lot of these views, because whereas uh, a lot of these other views reject that the words of God are actually the words of God, and they're just simply ideas of God given to men (coughs) put into their own words, or that they aren't even from God, and rather they're just from religious individuals. Um, The divine dictation view actually holds that every single word found in the Bible was dictated uh, exactly to uh, the individuals, The problem with this is that it takes away uh, the dual authorship component uh, of the writing of the scriptures because whereas we do accept the fact that the word of God has come directly from God and is preserved by God, he chose and elected certain individuals to cooperate with him to write these words for us. And they all had their own personalities and their own way of writing, their own educational backgrounds, etc., And so all of that goes into the writing of the scriptures. He just simply gave them the words and preserved the accuracy of the words, but he didn't dictate to them, this is exactly how you're going to write every single one. And we see that obviously communicated through the scriptures in the sense that many of the books of the Bible read very differently than other books of the Bible. And so you see the personality of the authors coming through. Um, You also see uh, different facts um, being presented in um, accounts that uh, are presented in uh, uh, different books, for instance, the four Gospels. None of them are inaccurate, and none of them are in error or contradiction with one another, but each one records uh, slightly different events, and that's from the individual author being chosen for a specific purpose to convey those events, as opposed to just being dictated uh, to write the words, because otherwise we would have four identical Gospels, we would see... Uh, identical accounts in Chronicles compared to uh, the books of Samuel and Kings, etc. Now, there are times in Scripture where we actually see Scripture identify that uh, God is dictating to a certain individual to record words uh, in exactly the manner by which God is prescribing. And so, for instance, we can turn to to Exodus 20. see in Exodus 20, as uh, God is giving uh, the Ten Commandments through Moses, uh, in verse 1 it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, etc. So it's uh, identifying that God is speaking exactly these words to be dictated in exactly this manner 
uh, to Moses and then through Moses to the people. Uh, so in this particular instance, we're being given the divine dictation of God, but that is not to represent the entirety of Scripture because there are plenty of instances where we see the in, uh, personality uh, of the individual uh, come through in the writing as well. Um, but that's not to make us doubt the exact words. It's just that the way that it was written represents the individuals who were chosen to write it, still overseen by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> uh, any questions on uh, any of those uh, false views before we move into what we hopefully mostly accept uh, in this room as being the... <coughs> no? Okay. That's good because I don't really want to talk about false views anymore. Uh, so let's move into uh, what I... I believe that we all probably, without even necessarily realizing uh, the terminology behind it, accept as being uh, the correct view of scripture, and that is verbal plenary inspiration. So that sounds like a, a really big um, uh, seminary term, but I'm going to give you um, hopefully a very concise definition of it. So I'm pulling this from uh, Lewis Perry Chafer's uh, Systematic Theology uh, in his chapter on Bibliology, and specifically the section on inspiration, uh, he goes on to define uh, verbal plenary inspiration as such. So first he defines verbal inspiration. Uh, and he writes that verbal inspiration means that the original writings were guided by the Spirit of God so that the choice of words expressed God's point of view. In, his, uh, in this activity of the Holy Spirit, human authorship is respected to the extent that the writer's characteristics are preserved and their styles and vocabularies are employed, but by the work of the Holy Spirit, their writings were kept from any intrusion of error. The scriptures are therefore inerrant. So, to break that down, essentially, verbal inspiration just simply means that God is the one speaking the words, but he's respecting the fact that each person he's choosing has a different educational background and a different uh, set of characteristics that are unique to them. And so that's being communicated in the presentation, but the words are still his and they are without error. He continues, plenary inspiration <coughs> means that the accuracy secured by verbal inspiration is extended fully to every portion of scripture so that in all of its parts, scripture is both infallible as to truth and final as to divine authority. So, this is now talking about the accuracy of the scriptures. So, verbal inspiration means directly communicated from God to man. Plenary, the plenary aspect of it is the accuracy of it. And so, what we have is a total view of scripture that it is uh, given to us by God directly, and that it is entirely accurate, and anything that it says has finality and is perfect. <clears throat> So, now that we've actually uh, got a, a working definition of verbal plenary inspiration from Lewis Berry Chafer, let's go to a slightly higher authority, uh, Jesus. I think we can all agree that Jesus is a higher authority than Chafer. <coughs> so, what was Jesus' view of the scriptures? Well, we, we uh, can see that uh, as we read through uh, many different sections of the Gospels. Um, so, let's start with uh, Matthew chapter 5. <coughs> And 
I hope that many of these passages are, are very familiar to you. I'm not really picking anything terribly obscure, but uh, we're going to really examine these and, and look at them in context. So, Matthew chapter 5, uh, we'll look at verses 17 through 20. Um, Jesus is saying in this passage, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whosoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here Jesus is communicating that he, first of all, he's identifying the law and the prophets. Um, now, there are many different um, ways in, in which we categorize the books of the Bible. Uh, the Jews uh, categorize them one way. Uh, Protestants categorize them in a slightly different way, and even different denominations sometimes uh, categorize them uh, by different uh, terminology. But ultimately, um, what he's referring to is the law and the prophets, which, which is essentially the Old Testament. Uh, because we can look at the word law in a couple of different ways. Sometimes it's referring simply to just the first five books of Moses. Uh, sometimes it's uh, used in a more broad sense to refer to essentially the entirety of the Old Testament. And then he's also including the prophets in there as well. So he's referring specifically back to the Old Testament and he's saying that he hasn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, he's come uh, to fulfill them. And then he's also going on to say that uh, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So all of the word of the law, which we can examine as either the first five books of Moses or the entirety of, of the Old Testament, but he's also including the prophets in there. He's saying all of that is going to be preserved uh, until... Uh, heaven and earth passes away, which means that anything that we have contained in this Bible, uh, at least here Jesus is referring to the Old Testament, we'll get into the New Testament in a bit, um, is going to be preserved. So we have it preserved exactly as it was back then, and 2,000 years after Jesus, it's still here, it's still true, it's still perfect. Um, and then he goes on to say, uh, therefore, whoever relaxes uh, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called uh, least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm not even going to touch the soteriological implications of that. But what I am going to say is that he's also uh, instructing us to teach what's in the law and the prophets. And so, again, he's identifying the authority of the scriptures in this sense. <clears throat> Jason? Sure. What was the word that you said before implication? What does it mean? Uh, so, uh, sorry. Um, I'll, I just need to know if I'm allowed to ask my question or not. So sure. Uh, that word means? <laughs> so, uh, soteriological. Uh, soteriological, uh, soteriology actually is going to be uh, one of the theologies we're going to be studying uh uh, in a while. I'm not sure how far into our uh, systematic theology. But uh, soteriology is uh, the, uh, basically the study of salvation, so pertaining to salvation. Okay. <clears throat> I will refrain from my question. Okay. Rabbit trail or, or no? I, it could go there. Okay, well, so, well I mean, we... So we I'm just going to, like, we can we can discuss it later uh, if, you, if you're interested. I'm, I'm willing to have that conversation if, if you want. No. <clears throat> 
Um, and and if, if I ever use any words, by the way, that uh, anybody is not familiar with, please stop me uh, and, and ask like Ashley did because sometimes I speak without thinking. Uh, so just because I know what it means, uh, I, I know it's bad of me as a teacher to assume that everyone knows what it means, but, but thank you for asking that for clarification, Ashley. Okay. <clears throat> um, all right, so... Uh, to go back to the passage we were just looking at, so we see that Jesus is identifying the law and the prophets, that not a, uh, uh, what is his exact wording here, in verse 18, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished, and then he's going on to commend those who teach it and condemn those who do not teach it. Uh, so he's talking about the accuracy of the scriptures here and their preservation. Um, if we turn to uh, the book of Luke, chapter 24, I know in my short time here at Stonington, I've heard uh, Pastor Brad reference this particular uh, passage numerous times. Um, <clears throat> I'm actually going to be looking at verse 44, but we, I mean, we could even back up uh, before that, but I think the, the entirety of this chapter really uh, is communicating the same thought. So in uh, Luke 24:44, we see, uh, then he, Jesus, said to them, uh, the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So now he's expanding this uh, to more of a traditional uh, Jewish uh, categorization of the Old Testament, where he's including the Psalms as well. Uh, so um, we saw him already reference the law and the prophets in Matthew. Here he's identifying the law, <coughs> the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Um, and again, he's saying that uh, everything written about him must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So, <clears throat> in this passage, first, he's identifying, again, the authority of the scriptures. Uh, specifically, he's referring to the Old Testament uh, scriptures in this. And then he's saying that all of these things that are written in them was pointing to him. He's going further to identify what exactly they're pointing to, that... Uh, uh, verse 47, uh, actually no, uh, verse 46, uh, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So he's, he's talking about his own uh, uh, crucifixion and resurrection. And then he's also going on to say, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So uh, this is essentially um, kind of a parallel, uh, you could say, to the Great Commission where he's saying that uh, first I'm showing you uh, that the scriptures have authority, then I'm showing you what it is that they're communicating, what they're telling you about me, and then I'm actually instructing you to go out and uh, preach this to the nations. And, and again, we see that this is actually in agreement with what we just read in Matthew, because it's really not presenting a contradictory thought, but rather it's expanding on that in the sense that he was just previously talking about all of the commandments, uh, teaching them properly. 
And he was referring back to the authority of uh, the Law and the Prophets. Here he's expanding on that, and he's also, now he's sharing the Gospel. And uh, so we're seeing how they uh, cooperate with one another, and, and we're seeing how this instruction is being given. <clears throat> All right, let's, um, let's turn quickly to uh, John chapter 10. So we'll see in uh, John chapter 10, uh, I'm going to read uh, through verses 22 through 39, um, just to establish some context for the passage, and then we'll uh, look at uh, one of the things that Jesus is communicating. Uh, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to pause right here for a second. And I, I didn't even include this in my notes, but thinking back to uh, the last two weeks' lessons uh, concerning Revelation, um, you know, here, in, in a sense, we almost have uh, a communication of both general and special revelation and its purpose, because what he's saying is that his works uh, are what bear witness to him. So it's his miracles that he's performing, as well as his good works uh, that he's uh, performing that uh, speak to his uh, character and the fact that he's uh, righteous and the Son of God. But they're rejecting that. Uh, and so then... Uh, he's going on to say that his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. So those who are rejecting the special or the general revelation of uh, witnessing and observing his miracles and his good works as evidence of not only God's existence but also the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, now he's talking about the people who are actually accepting him because they hear his voice. They also hear what he's proclaiming, and they believe what he's proclaiming. So again, going back to the previous two weeks that we've been talking about, we really need that combination of both. We need the general revelation to open people's eyes to the very fact that God exists, but we need that special revelation through various methods, uh, the Bible, preaching, etc., to help people to actually understand what it is that they're observing every single day. Um, because even though they're without excuse, uh, we still need to help them in the process of coming to that saving knowledge of the Lord, because that's our instruction that's given to us. And here uh, Jesus is uh, saying, if, if you don't believe my works, you know, then you're not going to believe my voice. So if you can't even get past step one, how can you expect step two to be effective? <clears throat> um, all right, moving on. So... Verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which uh, of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, 
uh, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the, God, the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you did not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So he's referring back to uh, Psalm 82 in this passage. If we go to Psalm 82 quickly. Psalm 82, uh, we'll start in verse 1. It's a very short psalm, uh, just so we can get through it uh, in context. Uh, We see it's a psalm of Asaph, and it reads as follows. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partially to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So Jesus is uh, quoting this psalm, and he's saying to the people who are about to stone him, you know, what blasphemy have I committed? Because if God can even identify you as being gods, then why can't he identify the Son of God as being the Son of God if I'm doing all of his works in his name to glorify the Father? Because here, in Psalm 82, as we read it in context, God is actually judging these people that he's referring to as being gods. And I know there are a lot of fanciful interpretations of this uh, psalm out there that uh, sometimes recognize these beings as being angels or other divine beings or whatever, but we can clearly see from Jesus' own words in uh, John 10 that he's referring to it in the sense that God was talking about men who he identified as gods. And we even see that uh, same language being used uh, concerning Moses uh, in the book of Exodus. Uh, Moses himself is called a god to Pharaoh. So uh, what Jesus is communicating is if God can call these disobedient people uh, gods who don't even do his will, then why can't he call me the son of God? Because Jesus was performing everything that God wanted him to do perfectly. But he's using scripture to actually make his point here and uh, form the basis of his argument as he's presenting it to those who are condemning him. And he's referring back specifically to this verse, which, I mean, again, this is a verse that some of us may know, some of us may not, but at this time, I mean, it's not like he's going to some, you know, really well-known verse that everybody was quoting. I mean, he's cherry-picking this, like, entirely obscure verse out of Psalm 82, and he's presenting that to them because he knows full well exactly what the scriptures say. And he understands the context of the scriptures, and so then he's communicating that to form, uh, formulate the basis of his argument. <clears throat> um, there are a number of other examples I have written down for, for the sake of time. I'm not going to go through each one of them individually. Um, 
we see when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. I've gone over this before in Matthew 4. He uh, quotes scripture a number of times to refute the devil. Um, and a couple of other scriptures in which uh, we see this uh, practice as well. Uh, Matthew 21, 42, uh, he makes a direct reference to uh, Psalm 118, 22. And actually, um, one I will have us go to, uh, just because this one is especially effective. Uh, let's go to the book of Mark really quickly. <clears throat> Go to uh, Mark 12, and uh, Mark 12, uh, 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him, uh, him, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great thong, or throng heard him gladly. And so we see here, um, Jesus is not only referring back to yet another psalm, uh, in this particular instance he's referring back to Psalm 110 uh, verse 1, but he's also uh, specifically and explicitly stating that David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So he's identifying that this was inspired by the Spirit's direction. David's words were inspired by the Spirit. Um, once again, uh, verifying authority of the Old Testament scriptures that they come directly from God. So not only is his own reference to it approval from Jesus, but then he's putting a further stamp of approval on it, saying that David wrote this in the inspiration of the Spirit. <clears throat> Alright, so um, in the interest of time, um, we've gone through a number of examples of Jesus' own uh, approval of uh, the scriptures, uh, his recognition of their authority as being the word of God, the fact that they were inspired by God. We've seen that explicitly stated. Um, I have a number of other scriptures written down uh, that I can share with any of you later uh, in more depth if, if you'd like. Um, I'll just uh, name them off for the purposes of the people listening at home uh, so they can look at them uh, themselves. Um, we see Paul's view of inspiration. Um, Paul viewed the uh, Old Testament and New Testament together as being inspired. We see that communicated in 1 Timothy 5.18, where he makes a direct reference to not only Deuteronomy 25.4, but also in the same verse where he's identifying this as being Scripture, something that Scripture says. Uh, he's also uh, quoting Luke 10.7. Uh, so he's combining those two together and identifying both as being Scripture. Um, we see uh, Paul's opinion of scripture, obviously we've gone over this scripture a number of times throughout this study, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that all scripture is God-breathed. Um, we see um, in Exodus 4.15 and 7 uh, verses 1-2, through 2, uh, we see God saying to Moses that he is going to be the one uh, putting the words in his mouth and speaking through both him and Aaron. 
we see the same thing being communicated to Jeremiah in Jeremiah uh, chapter 1, verse 9, that God is uh, directly communicating that to him. And all throughout the books of the prophets, we see uh, the prophets um, identify that God is the one uh, directing their words and inspiring the writing of their words. Um, and then finally, um, to bring Peter's uh, view of Scripture into perspective, um, we see Peter identify that Scripture comes not from man but from uh, God in Second Peter verse or chapter one verses twenty one, and also uh, he directly identifies Paul's writings as being Scripture in Second Peter three sixteen. Uh, and then Peter himself uses uh, Old Testament scripture a number of times in uh, his own preaching. Uh, to give a couple of examples, we see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 16, when he uh, makes a specific reference to Psalm 41.9. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, when he makes a specific reference to Psalm 2, 1 through 2. <clears throat> and so... Time and time again throughout the scriptures, we see Jesus himself, and there's no higher authority than that, put his personal stamp of approval on all Old Testament scriptures by constantly either quoting them or directing people back to the entirety of the Old Testament canon and saying, all of these speak of me. And then we see uh, individual disciples of Jesus uh, constantly referencing these scriptures, uh, identifying them as being scriptures and inspired, um, such as Paul and Peter in those uh, verses that I just shared with you. Uh, any questions or comments on anything that I went over uh, today? I really like Jesus' sarcasm. I feel like he would have been to listen to when he's talking, because you can almost hear his wit and frustration yeah. and love come out in some of his responses. Yeah, I, um, he subtly I, mic drops all the time, and I really enjoy it. I, I've, uh, I kind of wish I could see person. <laughs> I've joked with my friend Eric uh, a lot of times. Uh, he, he and I both, uh, whenever we're uh, engaging with people, um, uh, one of our favorite uh, lines to quote from Jesus is, Have you not read? <laughs> because it is such a, a sarcastic line, but at the same time, um, it, it's good sometimes to remind people. Um, in, in fact, uh, one thing, really quickly. Let's go to Matthew 22 for an example of uh, what Ashley's saying there, really quickly, and then I'll uh, conclude us in prayer. <clears throat> because uh, this actually comes through very well <clears throat> in that scripture. Matthew 22, uh, 29, so this is when the uh, Pharisees uh, come to Jesus asking him a hypothetical question about uh, a woman who's gone through seven uh, different husbands, uh, one after another after another, keeps dying, uh, and according to the law of Moses, uh, it's their duty to marry the widow, uh, and so then all of her husbands eventually die, and then she dies, and they're asking, well, who's she going to be married to in, in the resurrection? And his response to that in verse 29 is, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And then he goes on to correct uh, their point of view. And, and so, I, I, going along with what Ashley said there, um, 
I think that sometimes, uh, as unpleasant as it can be, and we always have to remember to do so in brotherly love, but as unpleasant as it can be, sometimes you just have to tell people you're wrong or tell people that this is what the scripture says, and I'm sorry if you're ignorant of that, but I will help you to understand it. Um, where the conversation proceeds from that point on, that's entirely up to the individual and the leading of the spirit uh, in, in your own interaction. But um, Jesus has no problem telling people they're wrong, and he also has no problem telling people that they haven't read the scriptures properly. Uh, <laughs> I think that... Uh, it's something that maybe modern Christians need to stop tiptoeing around and start identifying, and maybe some people would have better doctrine and make uh, fewer errors. <clears throat> All right. If there's no other questions or comments, um, I'll conclude us in prayer.